So welcome to episode 16 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. We've been on hiatus for a couple of weeks, but uh, we are back. We're back in time for round two of the playoffs. Um, Darren Hill, have you recovered yet from uh, the Bucks narrowly missing out, at least taking that uh, rap series of seven games last week? I have. I've put a put a ribbon around it and can, you know, been consoled by and consoled uh, our fellow Bucks community. But yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. So was there anything in the first round? I mean, I sort of felt personally there wasn't any great sort of shocks to me in the first round. I mean, there were some nice stories that came out of it. but I, I, and, and we did actually record a podcast after one game of, of round one, which unfortunately will never see the light of day due to some technical issues. But uh, looking back on the, on the predictions that we both made, I feel like we were both pretty much, and I mean, obviously easy for me to say now, but we're pretty much on point. I mean, I, I felt like even though Celtics didn't start well, they were going to come over the top of the Bulls, although had Rondo not got injured, who knows there. Um, we were both impressed with the Bucks, but didn't didn't feel like they would probably go on with it. Uh, I remember saying to you, I think we won't know anything about the Wiz Atlanta series till game five, because that one will go back at 2-2, and that's what happened. And then the Wiz closed it out. Um we thought maybe the Cavs and Warriors would sweep and that uh, the Rocket Spurs would go through. I took the Jazz. You liked the Clippers. That was probably the only difference that we had. Of course, you didn't didn't realise that Blake Griffin would go down uh, in that series. And at that stage, we were unsure when Gobert would come back. But So did anything really surprise you about the first round? Or was it more about the sort of storylines that came out? And I guess looking forward with some of these teams, even to round two or to next season for the teams eliminated. Well, uh, I sort of look at the first round in a few ways. One is, you know, sort of my, the way I like to enjoy basketball is when we have contrasting styles and you see them colliding in the playoffs. So I love that when you've got a team four, five, six, seven games in a row. And that's perhaps the dis- my certainly disappointment with Houston OKC similarly styled, right, with the extreme high usage point guard. So um, there wasn't a lot of great contrasting styles in the first round. You know, Memphis-San Antonio similarly styled. Milwaukee-Toronto, believe it or not, similarly styled. They kind of lead with defense and have, you know, some, um, some alien sort of unicorn-style players on offense. Atlanta, Washington. So, so there wasn't a lot of great contrasting styles, you know, LeBron versus Paul George. So, um, so not well, a lot of great contrasts. Let so, me just stop you there. Well, so I sure. keep hearing from people, we don't want to go back to the old way of basketball. So you, you would think most people would say Spurs, Grizzlies, that's old style basketball. It's not attractive. That's not the sort of basketball we want to see. We want to see James Harden, Russell Westbrook, that sort of basketball. Well, I'll ask you this. What was a better series and what was better to watch? Rockets, OKC, or Spurs, Grizzlies? So I wouldn't... So um, I guess I'm not conflating James Harden and Russell Westbrook with today's NBA. The, Westbrook is an extreme outlier, 42% usage, right? Again, makes Kobe blush. Harden is a bit of a unique, right? He's a lot more efficient. We've talked about this a thousand times, but so I think the extremely high usage point guard, I don't think is the benchmark. The benchmark is more pace and space, right? So, um, but there's no question, right? Oh, well, I think pick, the, the, I sort of pick your point. Give me a guess which is the which is worse. I want my arm, 
you know, my eyes poked out or my arms cut <laughs> off. So I go, Houston OKC was full of indecision, um, bad coaching, lack of strategy, lack of execution, 31 footers with 13 seconds left on the shot clock, um, horrible crunch time play. And I don't know. And I'm going to leave open the possibility, right? I don't know if because they were such similarly styled we got into a a pissing contest between the two teams like who can like out usage each other it just sort of felt like a lack of coaching in the whole series right so i didn't enjoy anything about houston okc don't get me wrong as much of a james harden apologist as i am i didn't enjoy that at all to be fair then the other side right memphis san antonio is a bit like milwaukee toronto we just had refereeing and the physical play you know, by definition, is going to let the, the the best player is going to win the series, and so Kawhi Leonard won the series because the refs didn't really. Again, I'm not making excuses for Memphis. San Antonio is by far the better team, and you can get me started on Tony Parker's Renaissance, which I thought was fucking awesome, mm. right? Um, so what's a, a part of my still? We've got the new modern NBA. Then the playoffs come, and it's just. It's almost like new rules, and I don't like that. I don't like, in particular, the Milwaukee Toronto, which I saw every minute of every game of the whole series, is that you got this veteran team. And I don't know, maybe was it like this in Memphis San Antonio, just physical, physical play, and you have to fight through the refereeing, and the sometimes it's consistent, sometimes it's not, and you just have to fight through guys getting hacked and no calls. You got to fight through you know, bodies going flying and no calls being made. So that's what I don't like about playoff basketball when it is so differently refereed and differently played than the regular season. That's the way it's been. It's probably been that way for a long time. But that's that's part of my struggle when you ask what's a more what's a better series, Houston OKC or Memphis San Antonio. Well, at least real NBA basketball was played in Memphis San Antonio. So I'll give you that one. But I still don't love the wrestling match, the yeah. rock fights. Well, I, I prefer. I think the best game of the first round came in the Memphis San Antonio series, Game Four. Um, which went to overtime and Kawhi Leonard lost his mind briefly, 16 straight points to bring the Spurs back into that one uh, before Conley and Gasol made some big shots and, and Memphis sort of got away with that one. That was that was sort of the moment where I felt like the Spurs are going to win this series because that was like a Game 7 for Memphis. They had to win that. Well done to them, they got it. But I, I was never, as a Spurs fan, never that worried about that particular series. Um you know, gap being another 2011 where they come in and upset us. We might start by actually talking about that series, the Memphis Cassantes. What we're going to do is go through the Western Conference, each each series of the first round, then preview the second rounds. This is going to be a two-parter today, and then the second part we'll look at uh, the Eastern Conference. And so with the on your point about the physical play, it certainly was a physical series, but I, I actually have to agree with what Fizdar, when he was really upset after game two because I was watching game two live and it made the point I think to you and a couple other guys that we were sort of conversing with to say this is this was an absolute jobbing like the Kawhi Leonard was just getting every single call and down the other end they just weren't calling it the same way and then Mike Conley's getting thrown around everywhere um the Spurs were at their floppiest best if you don't mind me saying um yeah you know, Ginobili was everywhere, so it was uh, Paddy Mills. And I mean, and, and across the playoffs, I'll tell you, if I see this call again, and I'm sure I'm going to see it plenty more times, 
that call and the, and sort of people keep complaining about it, that call where the guy goes around the screen and the guy goes to follow him and then he stops halfway around the screen, chucks up a shot, just a ridiculous shot, draws contact and they give him three free throws and you just go, oh my God, that should never be a foul. It should never be a shooting foul. They should just say, you want to stop halfway around the screen and look for contact, then you deal with the consequences in my opinion, because it's not a good basketball player to sit there and try and shoot behind a seven-foot guy. Um, and I saw a lot in the Spurs series. Chris Paul was doing it. George Hill was doing it. Like Every team does it, so it's not a one-person sort of thing. But I thought that was one of the frustrating things I had about the officiating. I hate that rule. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I totally agree with you. DeRozan was doing it. Drives me crazy. Mm. Um the, you know, you know what I hate more that played a actually played a material role that probably won't get talked about. And again, unless you watched every minute of Milwaukee, Toronto, an equal hated thing is this what do they call un, unimpeded to the to the basket, right? When Giannis gets a steal, he's at half court, and because there's a guy on the other side of the court who's like three inches behind him, it's not unimpeded to the basket. He's going to get two points no matter what, but they can grab him at half court. It's not a basketball play. It's an intentional foul. And because technically someone was two feet closer to the rim than Giannis was, it's not a, you know, there's no, it's not, it's not called. I I hate it. So I hate your, I hate your floppy, right? This fake, fake shot attempt thing that the referees somehow give into. And I hate this unimpeded to the basketball play where it's, it's not basketball play. It's an intentional foul. Mm. So if there's two rule changes that I've, that this first round reminded me of, that I will spit fire until they're changed. I'll even let them have nine timeouts, Des. I'll let, I'll <laughs> let them go timeout after timeout in the last two minutes if you can change those two rules. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. So, But to go back to the San Antonio Memphis, as I said, look, good series for the first four games. Memphis, I thought, got a bit tight at, uh, in the, down the stretch, and that comes from playing guys like Harrison and, and James Ennis. Yeah, James Ennis had a really good game, game six, and then he got a wide-open shot right down the stretch. Beautiful shot, and he just hesitated, went to dribble in, threw it to Randolph, it went out of bounds. Spurs went down, I think, knocked down a three, down the other end, it was game over. So yeah. um, just a little bit tight. But I thought Fisdale coached a great series. I mean, some of the sets that they were running offensively, the Spurs were struggling to catch up. So I guess we'll what we'll find out, I guess, in the second round is, did Memphis play really well in that series to take the Spurs to six games and push them a bit? Or are the Spurs just not quite as good as what we think? And yeah, you would have been thinking probably a five-game series heading into that. Although had they have won game four, which they were certainly in position to do, it probably would have been a five-game series. So I think it was a good series. For, the, for Memphis, um, big question mark for them now, I guess, is what do they do going forward? Um, they've uncovered a couple of decent players in Harrison and Ennis. They've now got Tony Allen, Zach Randolph off contract, as well as Vince Carter. Unlikely they bring all of those back. Maybe they don't bring any of those guys back. But of course, yeah. And Jermichael Green, you're exactly right. So, um, And, of course, the albatross of Chandler Pass is hanging around their neck. So that's that's the big question mark, I guess, for them in the offseason. You, you can't move that contract. So they're a little bit uh, hamstrung as to what they do. Um, so whether they just try and bring back pretty much the same team and say, look, we're going to be a 6-7 seed. Uh, we're going to be competitive on our day. Hopefully 
fingers crossed Chandler Parsons comes back and does something for us um, and maybe we can push up into a 4-5 conversation. But I think I get a little bit sick and tired of people saying, oh, yeah, they need to blow it up. They need to blow it up. Like, it, not every team can be championship or bust, you know. And, and if mm. you're, you're in the position where you've got Mike Conley, who's a really nice player, you've got Mark Gasol, who's a really nice player, the fans love him. What's the what's the problem in just coming back and saying, okay, we're a, we're a five six seed, um, we're probably unless a lot of things go our way, we're probably not going to contend for a title. But what what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to just go and trade Gasol and Conley and try and go for draft picks and rebuild again? I, mean, I, I don't I don't get that that sort of line of thinking. Well, this is the this is what we get in a salary cap league, right? You get these teams who are really good and then the salary cap and the tax structure effectively doesn't allow them to get any better again unless you're lebron and you you know this crazy outlier that's cleveland so i have right i fear that uh, kind of what you're hinting that they're going to become the next la clippers We've got this great core you wouldn't argue right with building a team around gasol and conley they're locked up for a long time and a lot of money both of them but because they're going to be so cap strapped, and now the Parsons contract is a that's a real killer. At least the Clippers have, you know, they got Reddick and Paul and DeAndre and Blake. They got kind of three, almost four sort of stars. Memphis are really going to need their their next sort of wave in the post Zebo, post Tony Allen, uh, post Vince Carter sort of era, which I believe will probably start next year. It's going to have to come from the draft and from within. So the team and the young guys getting better. Um, I don't, there's no other path, right? So I don't know if it's so much as are they not, they're not not trying to win champions, chimps, but what can you actually do? Like who's going to take Chandler Parsons, right? You're only getting it back, you know, an equally sort of Timothy Mozgov sort of contract, right? Or um, Omer Ashik in a second round pick. So you can't really trade him. And if you trade Gasol, you're going backwards from, a dynamic sort of two-way center, right? So the trade market's not really going to be open to him. So it's got to be the draft and from within. So I don't have a lot of, um, that's just, that's the nature of a, the competitive league, I guess we have, but um, I'm afraid they're going to become the Clippers because of Parsons. Like they're not going to get much better than a 44 win team unless something really, really special happens with the guys you mentioned, J. Michael or, and or, or Harrison well, or something. The difference between them and the Clippers is they like playing together um, and people like Mike Conley. So that would be the main difference, well, I'd say. you're onto something there. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I've been I, – I think maybe it was – was it Kevin Arnovitz who talked about that? Yeah, that really Kevin sh- Arnovitz. And he also made a very good point just on the Grizzlies before we jump to the, his article on the Clippers, which I think was where you're headed. Um he well, I was going to go about this, this comment about joy and, pl- and this fun playing together. Mm. And again, I'm and I see the world through the Bucks lens, and so that's why I'm not I'm not hanging from a rope um, after that just gut wrenching loss in Game Six. But so sorry, you continue. I'm, I'm on this. Yeah, the the joy of playing together. Yeah, I think that was an interesting. You know, he said, "Does does the joy come from winning, or does winning come from because of the joy of playing together?" So I think it was an interesting. Um, conversation to have and it's probably a bit more relevant to the the Clippers than the Grizzlies but he said look the pathway for most championship teams is to nail one of those second round picks or a late first round pick yeah he said look what's the key to Golden State it's Draymond Green got him in the second round 
the San Antonio Spurs got Manu Ginobili in the second round. They got um, Tony Parker was late first round. They did the Kawhi Leonard trade. Uh, he was picked 14 in the draft. Like These are the sort of things that you've got to do. You've just got to find that diamond in the rough in the draft. And that's what's going to propel them to the next level rather than sitting there saying, we're going to pull off some sort of trade magic or some sort of gymnastics with the salary yeah. to try and get someone what- else in. That's a great point. That's kind of the neat thing about the one and neat in a way, and that it gives you a wider range of outcomes from the draft is that with all the one and done players, every draft is deeper, right? By definition, you've got a lot of the, you know, the juniors and seniors like the Brogdons of the world, and we'll see a number of them, you know, coming out next year, but then all these freshmen sort of finishing up, I go, you've got a better chance, you know, of a top 35 pick turning into something. So um, right, you, you and I could probably list all that. Gobert wasn't drafted higher. Hassan Whiteside, and you mentioned Draymond. There's a lot of serious talent there. So, mm-hmm. I, if I'm a Memphis fan, I, I sort of love that my team likes each other. I think I, I could, you know, I, I'm going to renew my season tickets if I was a Grizzly fan. Um, I love watching Gasol and Conley play, and um, I'd love to, I'd love Chandler Parson to get a new new set of legs. <laughs> so, um. Yeah. And I thought yeah, anyway. they, they know how to develop players, and we've spoken about this before with Andrew Harrison. They threw Andrew Harrison, he was a second-round draft pick, threw him, or might have been late first-round, but they threw him straight into the D-League for a season. They said, we're not calling you up. We're not even thinking about calling you up. We're going to call you up next season. Had the full season of the D-League. He's come in this year. He was one of the leading rookies in terms of minutes played. He had to, didn't put up great numbers, but in the playoffs it showed this guy is now going to be an NBA caliber talent and wouldn't okay serve love to have had an Andrew Harrison coming off the bench and running their second unit uh in in their series when Westbrook went off the court so he's a he's a good quality backup point guard in the NBA so that has value um so I think if if they do come across that diamond they're up they're going to also be able to develop him in a way uh that will help them going forward so look I'm still bullish about the Grizzlies I think they've got a great coach in Fizdale, and they're, they're a strong organisation. They know what they're doing. They can develop players. Conley and Gasol are two great leaders. Um, obviously, Parsons, look, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. It's a bad signing on their part. But uh, we'll see what happens with whether they bring Allen, Randolph, Jamal Green. My, my sort of feeling is I think Jamal Green will definitely be coming back and will be one of Allen, Randolph, and Vince Carr's probably going to retire, you'd have to think. <laughs> Although, he actually played okay again in this series. Um, even though he's 40 years of age, he doesn't he doesn't play like he's 40 years of age anymore. I I would suspect he's back. You he's see that I just remember his, um, you know, these um, these pregame little highlight reels where he can still get up in the air and make a windmill dunk, right? He, he doesn't, you know, he used to... You know, world-class leaping ability will kind of keep you on the court. But uh, I'm interested just to finish off Memphis, San Antonio. Um, I keep a bit of a running tally every year on – I think you and I talked about this offline where um, what tends to happen in the playoffs, right, if the stage is too big for some stars or some semi-stars, you know, guys sort of bumping up into superstardom, the stage is too big for them and they can't, they can't face it. And then likewise – some younger players or role players or, you know, there's people who rise up to the occasion where it's just nothing is too big for them. And I'm curious about, 
so the bits I did see, I didn't like what I saw from LaMarcus, right? And I don't know if I'm pointing, you know, pushing on a bruise, but obviously Tony Parker was a, he played like he drunk from the fountain of youth. Um, but what did you see from LaMarcus? And because he's had on my watch list on, oh boy, I don't like his game in the playoffs. And is it, what was he like in this series? Well, he shot 43, uh, 45% uh, from the field. So that's for a big man. That's terrible. Uh, he took five threes, didn't make any of them. So he, he shot deserted him. But I felt they weren't, and they did it in game six, and that was probably his strongest game. I just felt they weren't working uh, to bring him into the game more. And I'm a sort of old school in the fact that I think with a big guy, it's like feed the beast. And if you don't feed the guy, he loses a bit of interest. Um, and he was sort of getting the ball at times and just sort of jacking up shots from wherever he where he he could. Um, now maybe it was just a game plan. It's like we're not going to try and pound the ball inside against um, against Memphis because that's not playing to our strengths. Um, so they were maybe asking him to just take some of those outside shots. But that was what I saw. I mean, particularly the game where he only got the two rebounds in forty-two minutes. I mean, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. He, he also only took eleven shots in that game, and I just thought, well, is there a point where he's just losing a bit of interest there? Um, and is he the sort of guy? And it's easy to say, look, that's just weak mentally, and you should should be able to be engaged whether you're taking eleven shots or fifteen, sixteen. But I just felt they weren't making an a concerted effort to get him the ball enough. And there was a lot of, particularly in that game, because Leonard was playing so well, there was a lot of sort of standing around, I say plays for Kawhi Leonard, and Lamarcus wasn't getting the ball. So, But I did think, in his defence, I thought he played really good defence in this series. Um, so, And that was obviously key to what we were able to do, what the Spurs I'm, were able yeah. to do. Maybe um, I'm just worried about him in a, in a game where it's going to feature, that's what I'm sort of thinking, I, I'm a little bit worried about him chasing around a, a Ryan Anderson or, you know, the rangy athletic Capella, you know, or the, another guy drunk from the Fountain of Youth, not, you know, Nene. Okay, I'm not actually worried about Lamarcus versus Nene. Or, you know, even Ariza can sometimes go and defend a guy like Marcus. So are you, um, are you worried at all about how he's going to fit in the next round? I'm more worried about, I guess... Because what OKC did, it was a little bit of a rope-a-dope in that they, and, and you touched on it before, they basically dared James Harden to say, you boot us single-handedly, and let's get into a shootout, James Harden versus Westbrook. And Westbrook just does that better. Like, he is a better ball hog than what James Harden is, <laughs> you know. So, and, and that's what happened in that series. So, but the thing is, OKC have Stephen Adams. The Spurs don't have Stephen Adams. Now, the guy, I think it was Kevin O'Connor who made the point. He said the Spurs have a lot of Ennis Canners, and I thought that was a complete insult against everyone on the Spurs roster. We don't have anyone quite as bad as that on the defensive end. But he, he's right in terms of you've got guys like Pau Gasol, Lamarcus Aldridge, who aren't really well, Paul, known as rim protectors Lee, as such. You know, David Lee, right? So he's yeah. Not got guys yeah. that you're going to stay, say, stay. Because what they did, okay, see, they just stayed at home on all the shooters. They obviously had Robeson as the primary <clears> defender. And then Adams, and even if Adams got switched on to Harden, he was just staying with Harden and just backing off and saying, if you want to shoot the three, try and shoot the three type of thing. But we're not going to give you the options of passing around. So I'm not sure if the Spurs will play that same game um, against them. So, and, and the Spurs have struggled 
defensively against Houston so far this year. It's just Houston haven't executed well down the stretch in those games, which when yeah. we get to the preview of that series, that has been a, a common theme for them right throughout the season, in fact. So, uh, but I, I'm not so worried about LaMarcus as, as what some Spurs fans have been, but he certainly didn't play that well um, in the in, in that last series. But I also go back to the fact that he, he destroyed OKC in the first two games. Last year in the second round, he wasn't as good in the rest for the rest of that series. <clears throat> But I think he, I think he can play in the playoffs. So I'm not as, I'm not as down okay. on Marcus Aldridge as whatever right. plays. But I was surprised by Tony Parker. I, I thought Tony was pretty much done. Um, fantastic performance out of, I think, four of the six games. He was outstanding. Yeah, he played 27 minutes a night too. So it wasn't like he was putting in massive minutes um, between him and Paddy Mills. Look, they both. He was well. the. He sing. I think he was the <laughs> single. He's the reason they won in six. I think that could, could have been in seven because David Lee wasn't doing much. Lamarcus was oh, Marcus is okay. Gasol was an embarrassment in game six. I don't think he scored. Did he? They just it's one of those games where the bench gave them nothing. And Parker, I don't know if he missed a shot. I don't have the stats in front of me, but he just that beautiful old Tony Parker mid range and the floaters and the kiss off the glass, you know, and the high arcing, you know. Oh, he was hitting sort of drop. He was just everything was going. I'm like, wow, mm. that's got to be fun to see that sort of come back. Because I think you were worried about writing his obituary, you know, in middle of March. You know, we talked about it, and mm. so that's got to feel good to whole Spurs land together. Um, Tony Parker makes them a legitimate threat. No, I still heavily tip Golden State, but oh, of if Tony plays like this, right, not maybe not 11 for 13 from the field every night, but if they get a 31 minutes a night from him, you know, and he's scoring 20 points a game, that is, that's a, that's enough to scare Golden State, I hope. The player so whose yeah. obituary got written in this series, sadly, was Manu Ginobili. Uh, he had one yeah. okay game, but he didn't score, I think, in five of the six games or four of the six games. Um, so it was, yeah, it was tough to watch uh, a player. Manu, maybe he'll come out. Look, I think Houston's a nice matchup for Manu because he's such a high IQ player on the offensive end, and Houston are generally such low IQ on that end of the on of the court. So I think oh, here we go. <laughs> You're just warming up, aren't you? I think You're he'll warm. he'll pick Houston apart. So, uh, but we'll wait and see. He has played well against Houston this year. From memory, quick last point on this series: the player of the first round, not even a question in my mind. Kawhi Leonard, absolutely outstanding. Thirty-one points a game, six rebounds a game, three point eight assists, two steals, uh, one only one block, so not not big there. Only fourteen turnovers, uh, shot the ninety-seven percent from the three throw line, forty-eight percent from three, and fifty-five percent all up. True shooting percentage was off the charts. Just an unbelievably efficient series and a great defensive series. Uh, when he, he took f- that game four over, it was just a sight to behold. He had a 50-40-90 series, didn't he? I think I read. Wasn't he? 50-40-90? Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, actually, 90, as I said, 96-48-54, well, close enough to 55. So There you go, 55-45-95, okay. So there you quite, go. quite unbelievable. So that was a – I, I thought there was some good basketball played 
in that series. Um, the next series we're going to talk about, I thought there was zero good basketball played in, although maybe a little bit of good basketball from the Rockets in game one. Let me read you some stats, Darren. You like a stat. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So here's our two so-called MVP candidates. They went head-to-head. One guy shot 53s, and he was a massive 24% from three-point land. So that's 10 threes a game. He's shooting 24%. Well done. Well played. The other guy shot... He shot one less. He shot 49 threes. So he was almost 10 a game, not quite. He shot a massive 26% from three. Oh, he was on fire. He was on fire. Why would you not be shooting threes when you're shooting 24%, 26%? I don't know. Of course. Uh, they had 30 turnovers for player A... And player B had 28 turnovers. Oh, sorry, player A, 28. Player B had 30. Uh, a fantastic 35 assists, 28 turnovers for player A. And player B, he did a little bit better, 54 assists and 30 turnovers. So that's where the NBA's headed, I'm told. These are the two players everyone wants to talk about, everyone wants to watch. I thought it was the most unwatchable uh, antithesis of everything that basketball should be in this series. And Russell Westbrook absolutely embarrassed himself. Uh, he shot them out of... The, they really, out of the five games, because Houston didn't play well in this series. And now, as I said, some of that is down to what OKC did on the defensive end. Uh, but they were in every game bar game one and really were in a good position to win every game bar game one. They won one game, and I think in that game, Russell Westbrook shot two threes in the entire game, and they won that one. Uh, and Harden actually scored 44 in that one. And then they lost the other one simply because Russ Westbrook just shot them out of the games. And I watched, I did catch the end of game five, and Westbrook came down. He actually passed the ball. He gave it to Robeson, I think, and then Robeson tried to get it inside. The Adams, Adams dropped it out of bounds. Westbrook did his thing where he threw his hands in the air and gesticulated to them and sort of shouted at them down the court. And next time he came down, and because he can do much better, the next two possessions he shot off-balance threes, which didn't even hit the rim and went straight out of bounds. So that's obviously a much better, a much better way of doing things. Um, honestly, it was it was horrendous. It was horrendous. And the only thing that was, I guess, a positive for OKC was Robeson played really well in this series. Um, he shot 41% from three. Maybe he should have shot 53s. <laughs> well, he uh, shot less than 40% from the free throw line, right? That's he shot the... 14% from the free throw line. 14%. Yeah, so... Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, it was just so, awful. And I mean, they, I don't know they did the so game... hacker Robeson. Yeah. He was three of twenty-one at the line, so I don't know. And three of twenty-one. Yep, at the three-throw line. Jesus. <laughs> so well, they anyway. were doing. And it was two for the critical game four. I know he was two for twelve. I remember that. What's that's the one where they, the whole um, Houston bench was laughing, you know. And the worst which, thing is, he, you know, said, he of... did actually play well. He played good on D. He's hitting his threes. And then missed the free throws. So uh, to go back to earlier, player A was James Harden, in case you were wondering at home. Was it? Player A was James oh. Harden. He shot a massive 12 of 50 from three. 12 of 50 
Congratulations, James. So he was 35, 35 assists and 28 turnovers. 28 turnovers. But he got to the line 73 <laughs> times. That's what saved him in the series. Well, that's his whole career, really. Yeah. And yeah. Westbrook got to the line 56 times. Um, so, you know, and as I said, just to me, unwatchable basketball. I, I, I pray Houston play the same way in round two because it's going to be a short series, but I don't think they will. I mean, I think in part it was sort of OKC wanting, they were playing OKC's way. And when they, you know, the occasional times they were not able to play the way OKC wanted to play, um, they sort of did get on top in the series. So, But OKC, to me, that was one they left on the table. And, and if Billy Donovan's not showing Westbrook some of the tape of those games in the off-season, um, he's not earning his, his salary. Well, so I'm going to look at glass half full, right? So like, for example, in game four, when um, Harden only shot like 15 times, which is like a personal best, right, <laughs> to limit it. That's the game when Nene was, I think, literally 12 for 12. The bench scored 64 points. The three players off the Houston bench scored 64. The five starters scored 49. And so I know, yes, it was OKC, but I said that's what Houston does have. They've got their eight-man rotation. They know exactly their role. Everyone does their role exactly how they're supposed to do it. Yes, sometimes it is James Harden going two for 12 from three. There's no defending that. I'll never defend it. I don't get it. It's ugly. Um, I hate it, but that's how they play. Yeah. So I go, does the question is, can it win round two basketball games? And I go, that's where they have a shot. When Lou Williams and Eric Gordon come off the bench and, and start draining threes and hitting their f- free throws. And if they get anything from fricking Nene, I mean, that was, that game was almost hysterical. Could you have thought a more unlikely playoff hero that literally saved the series? Nene going 12 for 12 that game. So my glass half full is the bench. The bench played and the bench did fantastic for Houston. They bailed. They bailed out. Right. Um, what what we saw from Harden on his worst days. Well, um, I think the touch on that point too. What impressed me about Houston was it was different players stepping up on on different nights. So it wasn't just Lou. Like overall, no one had like Lou Williams was okay in the series. Gordon was okay. I mean, if you look at their overall series numbers, no one's jumping off the page at you, um, other than probably Lou Williams who put up the, the sort of stats that you'd expect from him. Um, yeah. But it was different nights. I think game one, Lou Williams didn't do much at all. Um, and then game two, though, he comes out and hit five or seven or something from three. So, you know, that that's what was good for Houston. It's, it's yeah. just different guys stepping up. Obviously, Harden's got to be better. Maybe he's playing injured. I think part of it was he just got into this routine where Westbrook coming down, chucking up a shot. He went down and chucked up a shot. And it just sort of got into that rhythm of the game. And credit to Dan Tony, who could actually coach his team other than what Donovan was doing. Um, he got them focused uh, on, on occasion, um, you know, on the offensive end. So that was, to me... Maybe the difference in the series, just that Houston had a bit more of a plan offensively that they would occasionally implement, um, whereas OKC, who knows what's going on when the, on the offensive end. Well, I, I think he had one good game within the game they won, but I go, didn't you acquire Taj Gibson to be the, you know, the wily veteran, the solid, you know, get me 15 and 10, 
every night. He didn't do anything. He had one good game mm-hmm. and four awful ones. Right? How do you, how does Taj Gibson play 24 minutes and get one rebound in game one? How does he play 22 minutes in game four and get two rebounds, yet five fouls and, and you know two turnovers? I go, what? Nobody. So I'll ne- – again, this is the, the recurring theme for the last three months with Russell Westbrook. Who was he passing the ball to? Who's he, who, what sort of game plan did they have? So I go, is it bad coaching? Is it Russell? Is it a combination of both? But I saw they had one trick, and that one trick was Russ, and that one trick didn't work. What do you do? Oladipo was terrible. Taj was terrible. Roberson couldn't. Roberson was good. He just couldn't hit a free throw. Roberson could have won that game single-handedly if he makes even 50% of his free throws, right? They probably win that game. So I go, that team... I don't know where I put them in sort of my end of year sort of obituary, but boy, they they're in trouble if they can't keep up with a Houston team who plays just like they do. Right. I go, what, what if they didn't I go, why weren't they pounding the ball? Why wasn't Steven Adams getting 15, 17 shots? Why wasn't Taj, you know, being coached to crash every single offensive rebound? I go, I just saw nothing from them. That's what made me so mad about that series. It was less about shooting twenty-four percent, more about that I saw. I saw them do nothing. Well, here's the problem. You've got a big stiff that sits on the bench that's on a max contract, and he took nine rebounds total in the entire series. Nine. That's in five so, games. Who's it? Sorry, who's that? That's uh, Ennis Cantor. Oh, Ennis. <laughs> it's. I think it's now officially E. Cantor. <laughs> I think that's where we have to go with him. Jeez, so, I even forgot about him. That's how bad he was. I'd actually forgotten. Well, he's on max. He's on a max contract. So you know, you're paying. This is the problem. So again, you're looking at. Well, what are they going to do next year? Well, you've got Ennis Cantor on contract. So all this talk about oh, Blake Griffin's going to go home. Well, okay, how are you going to fit Blake Griffin in if oh. you've got Westbrook and Cantor? Cantor, I mean, he's the second highest paid player on the team. Where Maybe trade depth chart. Maybe do Cantor for Parsons, you know, maybe we'll do a <laughs> see what they can get from Chandler. I'm, I'm half not joking. <laughs> well, I think the thing about Cantor is, I mean, you've got to look at it and say, okay, yes, he plays well against the Spurs. Um, he's probably a decent player, potentially against Utah. I don't know. You'd have to see that. Although I think Gobert would be licking his lips every time he come onto the court. Yeah. Um, but outside of playing well against the Spurs, you, you can't play him against the Rockets. You can't play him against the Warriors. Um, I don't think, again, I don't think the Grizzlies are going to be too worried about him. So you're paying a guy max money. I, I didn't understand when they gave him a max contract in the first place. He's not a max, but he's... He got the max for what he was eligible for. So yeah, when I say max contract, yeah, it's not yes, like yes, the yes, top, right. top play yeah. player in the league, yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. max of what he's eligible for. He ain't going anywhere. He's in a big. That's right. Yeah, but he's, he's still on a big, big money. Twelve, fifteen million a year, or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's so yeah, right. look, they were terrible. The whole thing was terrible. Um, Houston's complementary pieces and their system is a lot. It's just superior to what OKC doesn't have. And I go funny when we start talking coach of the year. And you talk about the stage being too big for some stars and others rising up. I go, Billy Donovan did not acquit himself at all. Um, he did not show up and look like a player, that, a coach that had something, you know, a, a different level or different gear in terms of matchups or trying different things. Um, again, I'm not defending the 
caliber of his the supporting cast, but he showed me nothing. And then Russ now two years in a row, once with KD, and now here is is not a playoff crunch time player. The two for is two for fourteen fourth quarters or whatever he was doing, or two for sixteen or whatever it was. I oh. the numbers almost don't matter. They're just embarrassing. He embarrassed himself, and I mean he's embarrassed. Himself. ESPN's got a lot to answer for, I think, because they're sitting there, oh, fifty-one points and the highest ever points total in a triple double and making out like he had some great game and it's just like look if you think that was a great game well you don't know basketball i'm sorry you just do not know basketball yeah um, he shot them out of that game they should have gone back to okc 1-1 um they, you know let's say this game three goes the same way and and you would have think the penny would have dropped after game three when he shot one three and they won like and then he comes out and just goes back reverts back to and and that's what's even worse about his forty nine three point attempts compared to Harden's fifty. He essentially shot forty eight threes in four games, twelve a game, and he's shooting in the clip of twenty six percent. So I don't know. Look, I, I don't know what you do with that team. I think Billy Donovan stinks. I hated Billy Donovan last year. I, I couldn't stand the fact that everyone was going on what a great coach he was. Look, you've got Kevin Durant, and Russell Westbrook. They made some shots. They got some calls got through to the conference finals. I didn't think he did anything different than what Scott Brooks did when he was there. Um, and I think it's it's probably, obviously, in his defense, it's a difficult task to coach Westbrook, I would imagine. Um, but they need a coach that can come in and really control the reins because you can't allow... Because that's a team with potential. That's a team that was in every one of those games bar game one. Um, they should be better than what they are, but Westbrook needs to just rein it back in a bit um, for next season. Maybe Donovan can, is the man to do it, but I, I somehow doubt it. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like, I don't like what they have. I like Stephen Adams, but he was so misused, underused, ignored in the series. I don't, I don't like that at all. Gibson had one decent game. I just don't like how they were coached. So I think they've got potential. I don't like Oladipo as a number two. He's a he's a sixth man playing 35 minutes a game. So I, I don't know what OKC is going to do. I haven't thought about haven't thought about it enough. But I, I I don't like their future, especially with if Taj leaves and you know you got Dougie buckets and <laughs> we're they go oh worst campaign <laughs> worst campaign. Well, anyway, let's talk the next round matchup between Rockets and Spurs quickly. I mean, what this starts tomorrow morning. Um, I'm sort of thinking, I think Spurs in six uh, would be my pick at the moment, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was Rockets in five. It's, it's that sort of series to me. Um, I'm not sold on either team at the moment. I just want to see it. And I think obviously whoever gets out of this series that's when we can say, well, look, that's you know, that's the better team, if you like. Because um, I've seen good and bad from both of these teams throughout the year. Um, to be fair, more good than bad. But uh, I think it's an interesting matchup in that Houston represents the Spurs kryptonite in that they, they play fast, they like to shoot a lot of threes, they'll spread the floor, they'll get a lot of the Spurs in pick and rolls, which they don't, you know, they don't defend, always defend necessarily that well. And then on the other side of the floor, of course, the Spurs very high IQ team. They should be able to pick Houston apart at the other end themselves. So you'd think neither team is going to have trouble scoring. I guess it may come down to the supporting players. Um, and can Tony Parker have put on another big uh, series? 
can Lamarcus Aldridge bump him bump himself up from sort of fourteen and, and seven or whatever he averaged in against Memphis to sort of more like a twenty twenty oh sorry, twenty ten guy in this series. I think I actually think David Lee's gonna have a nice series. Uh, I think this is a better matchup for David Lee, at least on the offensive end, but can they make the Spurs pay on the defensive end? Um so interesting sort of contrast in styles. Um my sort of general feel is if the Spurs can keep these games close, I think they're just better in crunch time. I think Houston have been poor in crunch time all year. James Harden is, is a dirty little secret, but he has not been very efficient at all in crunch time. Another dirty little secret about James Harden, he has not played well in the playoffs. Really in his entire career, he had one moment in the playoffs when he was at OKC. He played a, hit a couple of big shots for them against the Spurs in games five and six in 2012 but outside of that he has not he has underperformed put it that way I'm not saying he played terrible but he's underperformed to his level in the playoffs so this is potentially the series for him to really stand up and uh, announce himself as not a regular season superstar but a guy that can bring it in the playoffs um, I, I agree with everything this is going to be a series of matchups and I think we're going to see I'm just as a, a non-Spurs, non-Houston fan. I'm 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 now thrilled to see the contrasting styles. I'm thrilled to see two supremely talented coaches who know exactly who their teams are now play and make adjustments and try different things and experiment. Um, a huge factor is going to be how can Ariza stay in um, Kawhi's jock, and then of course how does then Senate Antonio try to find ways to exploit matchups because no one besides Ariza can even has any prayer of slowing down Kawhi on the offensive end. So I think there's going to be some interesting chess going on there. And I think from San Antonio's perspective, I um, I'd love to see them pound it. I'd love to see what do the Bucks do quite effectively, believe it or not, with Greg Monroe. Right, this high post stuff from the elbow and just attacking and you know and kind of an ill-suited Houston team on the interior with, with Powell and David Lee and LaMarcus. So I'd love to see them dominate paint points in the mid-range game and get themselves a lot of, you know, less contested, you know, 12-footers and um, pull-ups and some a lot of pocket passing to cutters of Tony streaking or if, um, Patty streaking. So I'd love to see what what um, what Pop's going to pull out of his, um, out of the system for on the offense side against Houston. I'm not worried about San Antonio's defense against Houston. They're going to give up a ton of threes, and if they go in, they're going to lose. If they don't go in, they're probably going to win. But I think it's the fun part's going to be when with San Antonio on offense. That's for me is going to be the, that's going to tell us the, the story of the series. But if if Houston gets hot the way you know Boston did against Washington today, Washington played great. It's just all of all of Boston's three pointers win. Yeah. Exactly. When Linux draining him and Jalen Brown's draining off balance fadeaway twenty nine footer, you're going to lose. So um, I think the my money is also on San Antonio, um, but we'll see. Um, if they can't exploit them on the inside, then I yeah. And if Houston gets hot, if if Lou and um, Eric Gordon in particular, Ryan Anderson's been in a funk for like a month. But if he can find his stroke, um, it's right as you know, it's probably what you're terrified of, right? There's nothing that can stop it. If well, that's it. I mean, look, if they're he, shooting forty percent, they're yeah. You, 
they're in trouble. If they play like they did in round one, I think it'll be over quick. I mean, they shot 28, 28% from three. And it wasn't only Harden. I mean, the Ruse shot 18% from three. Ryan Anderson shot 12% from three. Eric Gordon was only 35% from three. The only guy that really shot well from three, actually Beverly played. I thought Beverly actually played pretty well the whole series. I like Patrick Beverly. Um, I do too. Williams played okay. I mean, forty percent from three. You probably even like to see at least someone shoot forty-four percent or something. You know, like Kawhi did. Um, but I guess from Houston's point of view, you might go, "Look, those shots are going to start falling. We're not going to we're not going to shoot twenty-eight percent again in a series. Um, we've dodged the bullet there." It wasn't really a series that suited our style. This is going to be one where we can maybe dictate terms a little bit more. And, and Dan Tony's an expert at that, just being able to get other teams to play his style. So um, I think from Houston's point of view, maybe they're going to look at it and say, you know what, we, we couldn't play worse than we did uh, against OKC. We're not going to shoot the ball that badly again. And I'll tell you what, if, if Trevor Ruiz shoots 18%, they're in big trouble because they need him on the court in this series. Um, but I love Arizo. I think he's he's the one guy I would bank bank on in a big match. So I'd be surprised uh, if he comes out and, and lays an egg again like that. So going to be a fascinating one. Looking forward to tomorrow. I think we'll, we'll learn a little bit about this term. I, I'm expecting at least one or two games in this series where we check in in the first quarter and Spurs are down 17. But, you know, don't you never give up the ghost or Spurs are up 17. This series is not going to be over no matter what until that final sort of quarter is finished because I think both of those teams are capable of going on big runs. And I think that I've got a feeling it's going to be that sort of a series where you're going to have some big runs from either team and then can they hang on to leads or can they come back from deficits um, in each of these games. So it's going to be good. One series that, that wasn't fun in the first round, I thought it might be, was Portland Golden State. I've got to come out and say a bit of a hot take here. I was very disappointed in Portland in that first round series. I know Golden State are a great team uh, and everything like that, and there's every chance they might just roll through the playoffs and go 16-0, 16-1, who knows. But I thought this was a chance for Portland to at least steal a game, um, maybe even two games, given that you know, Golden State in the second game had five centres on their roster uh, and destroyed Portland. So I, I was very disappointed in the way they played, even without Nurkic, who obviously would have made a difference. But I think Denver would have been sitting back thinking, gee, if only we had made the play, surely we would have put up a better fight than this. But did you catch any of the games in the Golden State-Portland series? I did. It looked like a scrimmage. I don't think Golden State was playing... They are playing about 80% pace and intensity. Oh, I thought but, the start uh, of the game, too, they came out and just punched him in the mouth and, and Portland went away pretty meekly from there. Yeah, so I, I was less surprised. This I I predicted a sweep, so nothing surprised me about it. I think the one thing where we all knew the um that the series was over was it was it game one or game two when both CJ and Dame went crazy and both scored like 35, 38 points and they still lost by uh, was it game one or game well, two? CJ I, had forty three in game one and they still lost. Uh, but he really didn't do much at all the rest of the series. I'm pretty sure it was quiet. game. Yeah, it was, I think it was game one. It was right? game one. Yeah, it was definitely game one. He had 40, and Dame was awesome too. He had, he yeah, I think he had 35 or yeah. something, and they still lost by double digits. That's when I knew it was over. I'm like when your two best players are playing fantastically as they both did, and you lose by 12, you're done. That is it. Like, what, 
what are the, what were they going to expect? Myers Leonard to go for 30 some night or Alan Crabbe, a crabby, the worst off. Oh, I hate a crabby. Um, <laughs> he gets under my skin. Uh, so I, I don't have anything bad to say about Portland. They're a little bit salary cap stuck as well. I hope Nurkic gets healthy. Um, I hope they find a way to do something with Evan Turner or Alan Crabbe. They need to clear one of those contracts. I hope they see something from Myers Leonard or ship him off someplace where he can get some minutes. I just feel like they had, I hate to say it, this feels like a wasted year for them. Aside from the miracle trade for Nurkic, he looked awesome. Just, they didn't, they didn't do anything, did they? Vonley didn't really develop and Harkless is still Harkless and Evan Turner, we all know, is not worth the money. And Alan Crabb got paid all kinds of dough because he's 3 and D and, you know, I guess he kind of is a decent 3 and D player, but is he worth that much? And Al Farouk Aminos a nice role. We didn't learn anything about Portland this year. That's why I'm a little bit a little bit worried about what their future is because they played the whole season, and I don't know what we learned. Well, I, I, don't think, think... I think Lillard needs to come in for a bit more scrutiny, though. This is – look at some of his figures. 13 assists, 13 turnovers for the series. He shot 28% from three. This guy, you know, you want to be considered a superstar player. 3.3 assists a game for your point guard. And uh, McCollum had four assists and 15 turnovers in the series. And they were just careless with the ball, uh, what I saw. And I, they just looked like a team, I guess, that was happy to be there. And I was expecting maybe a little bit more, particularly in game two when Durant's out, Livingston's out, Matt Barnes is out, Steve Kerr's not on the bench. Maybe you well, sniff an opportunity there. Yeah. They, they just didn't show me anything whatsoever. Well, this they is, were terrible. This is... This is where I um, I dive into the future bit, where I, I, I'm not going to blame Dame for it, because Dame is who Dame is. Dame is a wonderful communicator, an amazing locker room guy. He's a leader of men, and he's a great scorer, right? He's supposed to score 30 points a game, but you pair him next to his twin, right? Because he plays the exact same style. They're not either of them very good defensively. They're not true floor generals, right? You know, Dame's a shoot-first scoring point guard. CJ's a true sort of two. And I go, this is just not a – that's not a matchup. That's not a pairing that's going to get you – right? Because Clay Thompson plays fucking great defense. That's how he and the Splash Brothers exist. And they're surrounded by Draymond, the greatest def- defensive player in the league. So I go, Dame or CJ, I think they either need to be surrounded by – Right, some of the most amazing interior defenders and some wing defenders, which they do not have, or they need to split them up. I actually think it's probably more likely they're going to split them up. Um, so anyway, I'm diving a bit to the future, but I so I don't give them I don't want to blame Dame for being Dame because he played what he plays the way he does. Right, he scored 33 times. You know, yes, his assist turnover ratio wasn't great. But he played heavy minutes and scored a lot of points and kept him close-ish, right? Um, oh, look, what I saw, I saw a little bit of this series, not all of it, but what I saw was just I, a team that, to me, didn't care. Um, it just had didn't play with any sense of urgency. And, and mm-hmm. you know, the Warriors played probably six six minutes of urgent basketball at the start of the game, too, just to let Portland know, well, you're not going to walk over us tonight despite the fact that we've got a few players out and I think they were up 17 just by putting that sort of effort in and they just coasted the rest of the way 
Um, so I, I guess I'd have a little bit of a different take. I, I thought yeah. we'd see a bit more from Lillard. And McCollum was just a disaster after game one, a complete disaster. Um, 43 points. I mean, he averaged 22 for the series, but you take away the 43-point game. And um, just having a look now at his total points, <clears throat> he scored 90 points in the series. So you take away the 43-point game, he's got 50-something points in, in the three games. That's not enough. Um, for what Portland needed in that series. <laughs> I guess for them, um, the best thing to do is look at the uh, what Nurkic brings them. Maybe they just go in, keep the same team together, see what Nurkic brings them next year. Maybe they pick up something in the draft. I think they've got two first-round draft picks now. So Three. Three, that's right, yes. So that's a good spot for them. Um, and then obviously some of those guys on the bench don't look like they're ever going to develop into too much, so... Yeah, I'm just worried that I, I think that that's why I'm going. Uh, I don't see much. Vaughn Lee didn't show me a lot this year. He's a little better, but he's an eighth man. Myers Leonard still hasn't shown me anything. Awful. I go, I, I don't know what they're going to do besides trade Dame or CG. I literally, if they're serious about it, okay, add three rookies. Okay, what does that mean? You get rid of Connaughton and Napier and <laughs> Lightman, right? I go, no, really. I go, okay, you got three rookies. How's that going to help? They're going to be, you know, nineteen-year-olds, and I get what Damon McCollum are going to be thirty by the time, you know, they're competing. So I genuinely believe that Dame would be better paired with a, a different sort of style backcourt running mate. But um, we'll see. We'll see. I'm probably a bit premature on the, you know, maybe we'll get into that again when we get to the trade deadline or sorry, the draft. But I, I think the biggest story to me of this series was Golden State, and obviously Durant's coming back from injury still. But this is now Steph Curry's team again. Um, Durant was really a spot-up shooter almost in this series. Um, I know he only played the two games. He had the injuries, etc. So um, maybe don't read too much into it. Uh, but from my point of view, or just what I've seen of it, Steph Curry is playing at, at the very highest level that he can play at. Um, and to me, he's a slightly better player than what Kevin Durant is when he's at his at his peak, which he is, is at now. And Durant coming back from injury, not at his peak. So it's just smart, I guess, for the Warriors' point of view. But I think this is an even better version of the Warriors. Uh, if Steph's at his peak and Durant's just out there, um, you know, not, and, and who knows when Durant gets to his peak, how, how good this team can be. Um, we just haven't, this is the scary thing, I think, we haven't scratched the surface of how good this team can be yet. Um, I'm not sure if any if so, it's going to need someone to push them to show that in a game uh, or what it's going to take, but uh, they're, they're playing unbelievable basketball and they're doing it really in a canter at the moment. Um, and I don't know who's going to push them um, or bring out the best in them. Maybe it's going to take a Houston game. Uh, because, you know, you see Houston might come in and hit 25 threes and you go, OK, go and start. They're going to have to bring out the big guns now just to just to get past this uh, because I'm not sure if I see anyone going to be able to push them. Um, but did, did you sort of agree um, agree with that? I mean, just I'm, I'm sort of looking at the box scores and from what I saw, and it was hard in such an uncompetitive series to take too much away from it. But it feels like Steph's back and it's his team again. I saw all of one game and I watched condensed games. So I did the NBA TV, you know, the 15 minute condensed game, which was basically exactly what you described, which was, and I'm dead wrong. I was dead wrong about when KD said, I'm sitting on the bench 
when he was injured, sitting on the bench and watching exactly how it can fit in. Fuck, he did. Right. He comes in and you're exactly right. He's he's running off screens and running free and crashing offensive boards and just it looks like he's having fun. Like he's doing everything he didn't wasn't able to do in Oklahoma City, basically. Or he's getting the ball in great spots. He's catching it in perfect position and just rising up for in motion, in flow, in rhythm sort of threes. And he's like, holy Christ, they're, they were in cruise control the whole series. Um, so it was it was back to that beautiful basketball of two years ago. Um, and they didn't have KD back then. So um, what I saw was the well-oiled machine is well-oiled. I don't know how Utah's... Utah might steal one game when Gobert goes crazy and just goes Gobert, you know, goes 30 and 30 or something and blocks nine shots. I, I could see Utah stealing one by busting some heads if Favors goes crazy and, you know, Gordon Hayward gets hot in the same day and maybe gets under Draymond's skin or something like that. Mm. Um, or if Rodney Hood would fucking show up. God, this is the best, the, the best looking NBA player with the least impressive results. Like Rodney Hood is like my, I just want more from him. Um, so regarding Portland series, nothing surprised me. They look like a well-oiled machine. I think they'll steamroll Utah. Let's give Utah one game. Um, they're oh, not going to push them. I Utah one game. You won't? Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm doing it very, very reluctantly. So it's five max. Um, I definitely wouldn't yeah. put my money on five. I think but, if Utah um, are going to win a game, it'll be game one because maybe going with, with all that time off, Utah just still in a bit of a ribbon. And to be fair, Utah played some good well, basketball against the Clippers and we'll get to that series. We may as well start in that series now. Is there another point you wanted to make on? Well, I'm just I'm just asking the, the, the question, the, the big story, right, with Steve Kerr. Mm. We, talk about, we talk about injuries, but Steve Kerr is in, um, you know, in some serious – Peril, right? I don't know. Well, my, it's a dramatic way. <laughs> my take on it is, I would not be surprised if Steve Kerr doesn't coach again. To be honest, from what I've read, um, obviously we hope that's not the case. But um, he's had he's been battling the health issues since he had the back surgery, and the, it's it's not been pleasant, to say the least. Um, so for him to take time off at this at this sort of time shows how serious it is for him. Um, and obviously, you know, his health needs to be number one. So there, there is a concern there. I mean, look, I, I've always rated Mike Brown as a coach. I don't think they're going to lose a heck of a lot with Mike Brown. I think he's he's been unfairly maligned over the years. And there would be some sort of sweet irony if he was the head coach. Um, although you don't want to see Steve Kerr miss out. But it would be nice to see Mike Brown win the title and maybe just go and wave it in LeBron's face after what LeBron did doing when he came back to Cleveland. But, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, obviously we don't want to see Steve Kerr. Not on the bench. You'd love to see him back there. But um, it's 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 pretty serious. I, it, it, I, I think – so I think it's everything I'm reading. It sounds very serious, this, this balloon thing and the spinal fluid stuff. And I saw a really heartfelt um, interview with Charles Barkley, who's actually quite close to Kerr, believe it or not. They're, they're pretty close. And – and Chuck had said, this was right when it happened, he goes, I, he believed Coach Kerr wouldn't coach again full stop. Like, mm. he thinks he should retire. And I go, when a friend like Barkley saying that, right? And that's not, it, this wasn't Chuck being provocative. This was him saying, this is my friend who I've known for 25 years. 
and he, he could just tell he had some personal experience or information about it. So um, I be, I wouldn't underestimate how big a deal this is. I'm, that's probably less of an indictment of um, Mike Brown and more about what, you know, when let's assume it is Cleveland, because I've seen nothing in the East to tell me it's not going to be Cleveland. That's probably my my headline for the next the next half of our conversation. Mm. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But I, boy, Mike Brown, he's been in the chair making no decisions the whole season, and now playoff basketball, and all the history and all the all the spotlight and nowhere to go but down. Well, I guess we'll see. But boy, if shit hits the fan and when shit goes bad or Draymond not punches someone again or Right, yeah, an injury I happens. I, I think I, I could coach this team at the moment. They do seem self-coaching a little bit, don't they? But, well, I'm not worried in round two. I'm not even that worried in the finals, all due respect to whomever. Oh, the Western Conference Finals is the finals. There's no – let's not even – but then again, I said that last year, so I need to be careful. I need yeah, to be careful yeah. saying that. Let's move to the, the Jazz before I get myself into trouble there. Um, the Jazz <laughs> and the Clippers – uh, this oh. it wasn't a great series in terms of basketball. No, there was some good basketball player. I, mean, I think the big takeaway I had was um, that how important a player that Joe Ingles was for the Utah Jazz, and I say that because the team that signed or bought him over originally was the LA Clippers. They and dropped think, him. Yeah. What? Surely that you're telling me Joe Ingles, and I, you know, their their evaluation of talent at the Clippers has been atrocious for years uh, and that's that's just another classic example of a guy that they let go that they never should have let go I mean and he sort of impacted this series defensively as much as anything else uh, two steals a game and he actually got in foul trouble in game six I think if he didn't get in the foul trouble in game six I think they would have sorted it out in game six they were killing the Clippers early on in that game and Ingles got in the foul trouble and the Clippers came back um, he is a really important player, or at least in that series, for what they've been trying to do. He didn't shoot the ball all that well, but they won this series on the defensive end, first and foremost. Uh, George Hill had a nice series. Haywood went off for a game um, and was okay. It's a balanced scoring load yeah. generally across Utah. And the other big takeaway I had was just how big a mismatch Gobert was with DeAndre Jordan. I thought it was stunning. And, and Gobert... That was in game six, and Gobert sort of still didn't quite have his legs back after coming back, but it was just a no contest. John J. Jordan had no answer for Gobert on either end of the court. It was it no. was unbelievable to me. I think we saw the fire go out in L.A. I think we saw the flame, the last flicker of what this team, six years of, you know, I guess continuity. I think we've, I think we saw... The lights go out. Like as I saw on DeAndre, especially in game game seven. Um, actually, DeAndre played really well in game seven. But um, yeah, I thought Joe Ingles he out Luke Richard Mute Luke Richard Mute. <laughs> right, he scored zero points twice, but he yeah he played thirty three minutes. That's hard to play an NBA game. <laughs> play thirty three minutes and not score a point. Unless you're playing with Russell I, I Westbrook, conf- right? I think we can be confident that's the first time that sentence has ever been uttered in the history of the world. Didn't he, though? He out Luke Richard, yeah. 
I'm sorry, L Mbappé. <laughs> no, but, look, I, I like Mbappé. Yeah. He's not an L. And Joe Johnson. Let's not forget the early series heroics of some Joe Johnson finding the fountain youth Joe, as well. Yes. I said Big Joe, shot so, Joe. I said um, Joe. Look, I, I, but, I think uh, the big story obviously is the Clippers now because the Jazz. <laughs> Look, we don't think the Jazz are going to be... I didn't see anything from the Jazz in this series uh, to suggest they're going to... I mean, look, I'll say this about the Jazz. I think they're building nicely. They're not going to compete with the Warriors next next uh, round, but could they compete with the Warriors in two years' time if they keep this core together and maybe add a couple of pieces? I think they could, but not not right now. They're not ready right now. If Gobert develops his offensive game even more and starts finishing a bit better around the rim and things like this... He's going to be an unstoppable force uh, within the next couple of years. I just couldn't believe in Game Seven where they did a, Clippers did what they wanted to, which was get Gobert in foul trouble. Right, Gobert played 13 minutes and fouled out. He had one point, four rebounds, did nothing. Mm. That's why DeAndre had all that room to roam, and they still got bombed. They showed they showed nothing. Right, the Utah fucking out fucking defended. So I'm using the F word like in a. I can't believe how Chris Paul just couldn't get anything going in Game 7. I, I picked Clippers in 6, right? I thought they would, yes, okay, there's no Blake. That's a huge, huge factor. But I just saw them go out with such a whimper. Well, and the Clippers actually, need to enforce whatever Miami's doing in terms of their physical fitness because this is a this is a recurrence of a theme for them. They just seem to run out of puff. Well, but again, so... Again, six years of this theme, where's the Clipper bench? You lose Blake Griffin, so you lose 35 or at least 40 minutes a game. So who's playing in game seven? 22 minutes of Paul Pierce. twenty, you know, Nine minutes of Mo Spates. And why Ray Felton gets 24 minutes run, right? You know, it's just there's just no depth there. You know, Austin Rivers plays 38 minutes. It's just a meteoric drop, you know, from that core, the core starting five. And it's just a recurring theme. And and this earlier point that I think it was Kevin Arnovitz kind of shined a light on it and you've mentioned it, but the you know, they just don't play with any joy. It's a it's laborious. You know, Chris Paul is a is Chris Paul and um but I actually empathize with the I actually empathize with Chris Paul. Maybe because when I was <laughs> on the courts in Milwaukee I think I was sort of similarly styled, where I was probably a bit mouthy, you know. <laughs> yes, I know it's a shock. Very he, it's a shock, I know. Um, but he's matured over the years, right? And that this team is actually kind of—they've gotten as close as they probably can to each other, especially the core four. And so I just sort of am a little, sad's not the right word, but it's because of the injuries. If they had never been injured, but you just stack up everything that's happened to them with the Houston series and. You know, Chris and Blake getting hurt last year, and now Blake getting hurt this year, and then, uh, God. Oh, look, I don't think they just... win this series, even if Griffin doesn't get hurt. This is the Clippers. Um, that No one was injured when they blew the... They choked against Houston. No one was injured when they choked against OKC. Uh, I, I didn't think they were going to beat Portland last year when they got the injuries. You know, injuries happen. I mean, Golden State got injuries mm. in the first round. Um, yeah, it's a war of attrition, the playoffs. So... It's true. You know, yeah. and and it, it's a recurrence of a theme. Every single year, they either look tired, in, and then they looked very tired against by their own admission, they were tired against the Rockets uh, a couple of years ago. 
and they, they look tired again this year. I mean, last year obviously it was injuries, but this year they they just look out in their feet for game seven. And it's like you shouldn't. No other teams out in their feet game seven round one. So I don't really understand why. Yeah. Why the so, Clippers? Maybe they need to look at it and say. And I mean, you know, I read something from Durham Waiters this week. And to touch on your point, because you said something about the, the heat and how um, physically fit they are, and it must be a real thing within each NBA team. There must be different levels of fitness expected. Um, and, I, and I'd be interested to, to compare the Clippers and their level of fitness expected to, to a team like the Heat, because they just seem, and, and late in games, it's a common theme them that they collapse. And part of it, to me, seems to be fatigue. It does. So I, I don't I know about a blanket statement like that, but I, I definitely when you see an NBA team so clearly be that fit, it just jumped out at me looking at Miami. But so I don't know that about the Clippers as much as that it's a is it more of a function of, of their overall individual fitness levels or again just the fact that, you know, you just can't be playing forty minutes a night when you're a 30, 30 31 year old Chris Paul as many miles as he's played and 40 minutes for DeAndre, you know, I, and just that the bench, they just got no bench, right? Paul Pierce is being asked to play 22 minutes in game seven. Paul Pierce should be on a, you know, just sort of, you know, doing that sort of golf course wave to the fans, you know, and play some garbage minutes and, you know, trying to chase a ring here. But yeah, you know, that, that just goes to speak of how, just how, um, uh, just how shallow that that bench is. So well, see, it's a fair Bass, it's a fair question. Yeah. Brandon Bass was a bust. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought he was he was a terrible signing. But I mean, he's thirty one now. But he he was a complete bust for them. Wes Johnson, I like that signing when they made that. He's been a bust. So some of it's been for whatever reason. Maybe players just don't just can't handle the pressure there um, with, that Chris Paul sort of puts on them, and that that has been something that's been written about. Um, so I'm not sure why certain players that you think well, that, that guy should be a good fit and they just don't seem to fit in. And then the guy like Mbamute Mute um, ends up sort of turning his whole career around almost with a nice well, season this year. It's simplistic, but you need to have an NBA skill. I go, okay, Brandon Bass, but what is his elite NBA skill? There's nothing. Wes Johnson doesn't have... Not even a really reliable NBA skill. Like we pick on Della Vadova all the time, right? But Della Vadova has a freaking great NBA skill. And that's called fucking toughness. He will never, ever, ever back down. And we saw that, and we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later, right? So I go, Jamal Crawford has an NBA skill called making buckets. Mm. I go, Paul Pierce doesn't have an NBA skill anymore. Ray Felton doesn't have an NBA skill anymore. Most Spates... It would have eight minutes of an NBA skill. Like, oh, they have horrible roster construction. So I, that's what I think it is, less about the dynamics and how much they love each other. And they just have bad players. They haven't, when's the last time they drafted someone that was any good? Well, they don't have any picks. That's what I mean. I go, what, they trade them away that? every year to try and find that extra player that they've never found. They probably had in Joe Ingles. That's right. That's why I think. I think that it's a... I don't know. We'll see what happens. But do you, with all of them being unrestricted, literally all of them unrestricted. Um, I think Chris Paul will come back. I think Blake won't. Um, JJ? What, I think JJ, well, I think they'll want to bring JJ back. I don't know that JJ will want to come back. That's the thing. 
Um, he'll and, have his pick. Yeah, they, that's going to be the interesting it. dynamic. Like, you know, who who's the first domino to fall? Because if Chris Paul signs, do the other two, other guys go? Well, we're not coming back. And if he signs somewhere else, do they all come back? Does he if he signs, do they all come back? Like, there's there's interesting. It's interesting how it's going to play out. They've obviously done it this way for a reason, though. And I guess maybe outside looking in, you might think, well, they've set all these guys up to be unrestricted um, in this summer so they can make some some real decisions on them. Um, and maybe with a view to blowing it up. But then again, you've got the whole thing about Chris Paul setting up the CBA and making sure that he can get a massive payday within his contract. So it's hard to see that he's going to walk away from that. I'd be stunned if Chris Paul goes anywhere else. Um, yeah. But I think Blake Griffin's the interesting one. I mean, let me throw this out there. What about Blake Griffin taking his talents to South Beach next year? Oh, that's interesting. I was going a different direction. Um, Blake Griffin to South Beach. Unrestricted to go play with Goran and Hassan? Yeah, I think if they had someone else join him, perhaps. Well, that's a um, team that likes playing together. They have fun, at least. Yeah, they do. Um, but maybe to your point, maybe Blake's not fit. He's injured all the time. <laughs> he can't run as many stairs and do as many crunches. Well, that's it. He wouldn't be in the world-class shape he needs to be in. Look, I, don't, I go, does he want to go home and go to Oklahoma? I don't know. Well, they're capped out, pretty much. They're, they're capped out. It's very difficult to, to sign him. Unless they have to get someone to take on his stuff. stuff. So my my emerging, I have, I'd have to look at the contracts a lot closer, but I just think in terms of fit was... Um, is there a possibility of would he do a would he do a sign and trade, and so they could do a sign and trade for Blake Griffin for Paul George, so a framework like that where Paul George gets to come to L.A. and Blake ends up with uh, next to Miles Turner. Yeah, but why would can Blake be... Griffin do that? No, he doesn't need to do a sign and trade. I no, suppose he, he can get more money. That he can way. get more money, but that, that was a, that's what I'm saying. It's a harebrained idea. It was more about getting Paul George to L.A. so he doesn't have to play. Because I'm probably not more angry. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the Lakers could go and sign Paul George and Blake Griffin. And well, I actually trade, sorry, trade for Paul George and sign Blake Griffin and have uh, George and Griffin next year. Well, they could. Yeah, they could. Like that's that's on the table. I mean, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's sort of Magic Johnson's thought in the back of his mind. Um, particularly if they did, you know, if they hold on to that pick that pick next year is going to Philly anyway, their first rounder. So they've got a more of an incentive. They're a bit like the Nets next year. They've got nothing to tank for. So he might in the back of his mind say, if we're going to start winning, next year is the year to try and do it and make a bit of a splash with a trade and maybe send Brandon Ingram to Indiana uh, for Paul George. Uh, you know, get the, get, a, get the top draft pick. Hopefully you bring LeVar, oh, sorry, bring Ball in. And then um, you've got Paul, George, and, and Griffin in L.A., and, and the Lakers are on top again. If the Lakers keep their ping-pong ball, keep their pick, and all, everything's on the table. If they right. if the pick conveys, I think they're a bit stuck. Well, that's right. right? That's, no one's yeah. going to want to go there. Yeah. So. Yeah. But anyway, look, so we might leave the Western Conference there. Um and we'll move to the Eastern Conference. As I said, this will be a two-parter. So we might uh, leave that part of it there. But uh, join us again uh, when we talk about the Eastern Conference. 